and welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki, and you're listening to Talking Tachlis, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. Rifki, congratulations to the U.S. women's soccer team. We we won the World Woo-hoo. Cup. Yeah, patriotism, nationalism. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is very exciting. Yeah. USA. Did you, did you watch the game on Sunday? No. Did you? Yeah. I actually did. It oh, was, um, okay. as I expected... Soccer is not my sport, mm-hmm. um, but it was fun. You know, it, the game ended up being two nothing. So both times the Americans scored, it, mm-hmm. it's exciting. But you know, you watch an hour and forty five minutes to two hours for those you know thirty total seconds of action, including one of them was actually on penalty. So it's not particularly fascinating or scintillating to watch, but but it is exciting. I think I would enjoy watching soccer live. So maybe we'll organize like a talking talkless visit to one of the the New York teams. Okay. I'm sure you're going to be front in line to lead that trip. Yeah, sure. I'm down. <laughs> All right. Perfect. So, Uri, did you get any interesting feedback about last week's episode where we talked we talked about a few topics last week. We talked it, we reviewed the uh, the AOC concentration camp comments, and we also talked about uh, Maharat Rabah, Rachel Cole Feingold, who officially switched her title from Maharat to Rabah. Right. So I actually did get a bunch of feedback about the AOC thing, but we can put that aside for this week <laughs> Try at to least. stop talking about yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, Linda Sarsour is in the news this week oh, also, boy, but we're going to... We're particularly choosing to avoid that Yeah, we're going to avoid that whole crew for this week. <laughs> Um, but the, for the Maharat thing, yeah, I did, uh, talk about it with some people. Um, people have mixed feelings and it's, it's interesting because to a lot of people, maybe more outsiders to our little tiny world, they don't even understand what the issue even is. Like if she's a rabbi, let's call her rabbi. I mean, what did you hear? Yeah. I mean, I actually heard very similar things. Um, and I think one, uh, friend of the pod, she left an, an kind of interesting comment kind of saying to me that she thinks that part of it is the orthodox choice to make sure to differentiate, right? To make sure that, oh, I don't want them to think because I'm a female rabbi that I'm not orthodox. I'm not talking about Rabbi Rachel. I'm talking about Maharat graduates in general, that they're trying to differentiate themselves from their female rabbinic counterparts in the other movements. So they're Dafka trying to use another term, like they're trying to use the term Maharat or Rabbah or Rabbanit or something like that, that indicates, uh, no, 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 don't worry. I'm still Orthodox mm-hmm. and you can still, and still trust me. And actually, uh, someone else, I was talking to someone in, in synagogue this past week who made an interesting point that it's a little bit difficult right now to be able to read different institutions and graduates of different institutions who have some sort of female certification. Maharat is the only one that officially, I think, calls their certification smicha, at least in the U.S., but there are other institutions that give something. Like other orthodox institutions. Right, right, but it's not smicha. But it's a little bit difficult if I go to a synagogue and I you know, see a female rabbinic-ish leader, it's hard to have a sense. Obviously, with men, you don't know where they got their rabbinic degree, but you know that they got some sort of rabbinic degree. Well, you do sometimes know, or you could find out. Right, of course you could find out. Mm -hmm. But if someone says, hi, I'm, you know, Rabbi Goldsmith, you don't know, oh, rabbi. So that means, you know, Torah, you don't know that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there's something a little bit interesting in that there are female rabbinic leaders who didn't go to Maharat, so they didn't get smicha, but they're still considered rabbinic leaders in some way. So so it is kind of interesting what the the woman's rabbinic leadership world right now is in a little bit of a confusing place. I'm like really interested to see what it's going to look like in 15 years cuz think about what it looked like 15 years ago, right? It's a completely different landscape. Yeah, I agree. It's it's hard to say where things are heading. It's definitely very early on and I guess it is also very interesting how the language and the titles themselves are so 
intricately involved in like how we perceive the roles um, and the degrees that these women are are getting and the roles that they're, they're going to play in their communities. Right, right. And and a friend of the pod, uh, Susie, she actually asked a specific question. She was wondering whether people who are comfortable with Maharats, what percentage of those people would still be equally comfortable if they universally decided we're not going to go by Maharat, we're not going to go by Rabbah, we're not going to go by Rabbani, we're not going to go by any of those terms, we are going to go by Rabbi, if that would change the support of people. What, what do you think about that? Uh, I think it, at this point, it definitely would change the support, especially rabbi. I mean, to me, uh, I'm not a grammarian, but I think rabbi is like a male term. Like in Hebrew, it's it's much more simple. Like rav would be a man and rabbah would be like the female version of that. English isn't a gendered language like right. that. So it's trickier. But yeah, so if you started calling women rabbis, it's like, it's like when you have a girl, instead of a bat mitzvah, you want to be equal. So at 13, you give her a bar mitzvah. And I've heard of that happening. Or at 12. Right. You don't have to change the age. You don't have to, but I'm saying I have heard of doing it like at 13, boys and girls will both get a bar mitzvah because everything has to be equal. That that comes across as very silly to people who know what the words mean and whatever. Or you could just say, sure. who, who cares what they what they mean? We're using it to mean something else, and that's. But what, it what is. if everything else? What, what I'm the I don't think that's exactly the situation because I'm thinking of a more equivalent to an Orthodox situation, right? What if everything were still traditionally Orthodox? What if this 12 year old girl were becoming uh, someone who was obligated in mitzvot and were becoming a an adult, quote unquote, right in the Jewish religion? But it was called bar mitzvah. Or what if this person got smicha and was acting in a rabbinic capacity and was called rabbi? Right. right. So, I mean, language changes and language words mean what we decide that they mean. Right. So obviously it just is a question of how many people are going to be on board. And you asked me, and I, th- I think not so many right. at this point, but things right. can always things change. change. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, <laughs> we'll see what happens in 15 years. Let's see. So, Uri, let's dive into our main topic. Last week, the U.S. celebrated July 4th, marking 243 years of American independence. Aside from the usual barbecues and fireworks, and I actually went on a hike, Uri, it was awesome. It was like waterfalls. Nice. We could talk about it more. This year, President Trump gave a much-anticipated and controversial address at the Lincoln Memorial. Although many feared that the speech would get political, it instead focused on American patriotism and pride, mostly centering around the armed forces and U.S. military victories throughout the past 243 years. There were tanks on display and a number of military flyovers. It's in this broader context that brings us to today's discussion. 538, a website that focuses on statistical analysis about politics, economics, and sports, has been running a regular series called Political Confessional. In this series, they profile everyday Americans who write in to confess, quote-unquote, unpopular opinions, at least generally unpopular in the world of people who read 538. The most recent profile is called Political Confessional, The Guy Who Wants to Bring Back the Draft. Claire Malone, a senior political writer for 538, interviews Chris, a 40-year-old white man from Tennessee who works as a higher education administrator. Chris wrote, quote, I believe the United States should implement mandatory military service for all young men and women. I just finished my doctorate of education, and I was in a social context class, and our professor, who is the stereotypical liberal sociology professor, was talking about all the important things that schools do to build the social capital of our society, to teach citizenship, and blah, blah, blah. And I just realized that that's a load of crap, that they just don't do that anymore. I thought about... Where is it that I do see that common vision of who we are as Americans and what our country is supposed to be like? Because that's a huge problem we're facing right now. And I thought about the old men that used to go to the prayer breakfast at my first church, and they had all been in World War II. 
And a lot of them said, I wouldn't have known how to peel a potato if it hadn't been for the army. I wouldn't have known how to iron. I wouldn't have ever met so-and-so from the north because I'm from the south. So I said something in that class, and I got on the professor's bad side. I said something like, what if we had the draft again? And she shot daggers at me. It came from thinking about the role of education in particular, just given my career trajectory, in shaping our civic and social life and the way that we are really not doing that very well. End quote. So Chris says that he sees the military as a way to include all different types of people into the American civil fabric. But it's not just the military. He says that those with physical disabilities, for example, or conscientious objectors, they should do Teach for America or other programs like that to include everyone. But he also thinks that the military itself has specific important values to teach, values like discipline and purpose, values that, he says, many families just don't instill for various reasons. So, as we've discussed before, Israel has a mandatory draft, and many Israelis think that the draft has had a huge impact on their lives. It helped them meet people from different backgrounds for the first time, helped them network and engage with people who would impact their future career, and generally just helping them feel more Israeli, quote-unquote. And I think Israelis who don't do the army for one reason or another, and especially foreigners who make Aliyah, they do feel that slight twinge, you know, that lack that they're missing a crucial part of Israeli integration. So, Uri, I thought that Chris made a pretty fascinating case. But I want to ask, what do you think? Are we, as Americans, missing a sense of civic pride or connection to our country? And if you agree that this problem exists, is the draft a good way to solve it? And does any of this relate to questions about nationalism, pride in the American flag, kneeling for the anthem, right, etc.? So, Uri, what do you think? Well, I think the answer to those questions at the end is yes, it does have to do with those things. Um, I think it's a really interesting topic, and especially as Jews and Zionists, whether we personally have served in the IDF or not, I think the concept of an army and a mandatory conscription into the army is much closer to home for us than it is for many Americans, especially in New York and and the Northeast and stuff. Mm I think in a lot of ways, this whole thing comes down to like this major paradox, you know, looking at Israel specifically for a second. I think if you ask any Israeli, they're going to say, I wish we didn't need an army. I wish there was no army and it wasn't necessary to, you know, have uh, all all these weapons and, and people who know how to use them to protect ourselves. At the same time, if you ask them what was what did you gain from the army? What does the army, you know, what has it contributed to the society in Israel? They would go on and on. And there's an endless list of all the positive contributions that the cohesiveness and the melting pot um, and the, you know, responsibility and the discipline and all those things that have contributed to Israeli society. Um, all, even all a lot of the startups and companies and CEOs who of these people who are products of these elite units in the army, and they learned a lot of their um, discipline and ways of working with people and, and thinking, met a lot of their connections, met their connections, all these kinds of things um, are all stem in positive ways from the army. But at the root of all of it, those all those same people would genuinely say, "I wish we didn't need the army." So you know, same thing with America. We call you know this guy in the article. He references um, World War II veterans. You know, they're no the World War II um, veterans are known as the greatest generation, you know, and, and there are unfortunately, you know, not as many of them around nowadays as when we were maybe younger. But I, I remember like, you know, that my grandfather uh, fought in World War II. And I think people still have that perception of like, we have so much to be grateful for to these people. They are, you know, they, they saved, you know, Western civilization, they saved freedom and democracy and, um, the, the, you know, the greatest generation. But at the same time, I wonder if it's possible for there to be something called a greatest generation that doesn't have to involve 
a war and fighting, you know? So so getting to, to this um, question... But what does it even mean to call them... The, I mean, we don't, we don't have to yeah. focus on this, but, like, who decides they're the greatest generation? Like, what does that actually mean? Well, I think that's just, like, a colloquial term that sure, kind of but picked like, up because of all the sacrifices that they made and the bravery that they showed um, in this, like, moment in history where they were victorious. I, I think that's what it, what it's about. They defeated Hitler and the, and the Nazis, and they saved... Europe and America from dictatorship. Right. I don't know. I just, I, I feel like even when we talk about the American draft, it's hard because a, a huge percentage of Americans were not part of that draft, right? Obviously women, right, were not conscripted into the army. So one of the major, you know, issues here is the is a gender problem, which is that historically and even today, most of the military is, is male. And if we're, if that is the ultimate thing you can do, then women are sort of missing out on that opportunity, if you want to look at it that way, even though obviously in Israel there are many women in the army and in America also. But aside from that, I think there's just like a broader, deeper issue, which is kind of like the glorification of, you know, military service. But at the same time, it's it's like a necessity. And that, like I started by saying, like, I think Jews and Israelis understand that more so than a lot of Americans. Like, I wonder if that, that sociology professor who gave the dirty looks in, you know, in that article mm-hmm. about talking about uh, mandatory conscription. I mean, like, do you think that sociology professor thinks retroactively in World War II there should not have been mandatory conscription? I doubt it, because I think mo- of all wars, the most people agree, like, that was necessary for america to to fight in so so i'm not really sure where where that leaves us you know what i mean yeah i i hear you and i think the i'm with you on the sort of uh the glorification of the military and i actually think that this is a little bit of a problem in israel obviously you know i'm you know i have uh i have nieces and nephews in israel right i have a lot of family that has served and will continue to serve and it i i feel conflicted because on the one hand it does fill me with this sort of pride of knowing that like you know they're defending israel they're defending uh, a place that i feel really strongly about that i care a lot about and i know that seeing my nieces or seeing my nephews in a military gear or even just in their uniform is going to you know be like really beautiful and emotional you know for me one day um but at the same time I think it is worrying. You know, we talk a lot, and I'm obviously not comparing, but we talk a lot about, you know, seeing six-year-old uh, Palestinian kids, you know, holding mock guns and, you know, doing mock things. And Israel does things like that all the time. There is a glorification of the military well, in okay. Israel. It's, it's offensive because it's, it's not the same thing. Of but course it's not it the looks, same thing. It looks thing. the same, right, but Right, of course. Not, but right. I'm saying, like, when you see any six-year-old holding a fake gun and talking about the army, right. that's not something we should be glorifying, right? right? Even though I agree and say about my own nieces and nephews and maybe my children one day you know I don't have children just to clarify maybe my, you know and I'm saying I think this this paradox is is important for us to recognize that it's not a good thing to glorify the idea of people holding guns and just as you said Israelis also you know no one's thrilled about or no one should be thrilled about it right um that's why I think one of the things that feels a little bit weird is this idea that a draft should be mandatory and saying that this is the way to instill civic pride at the same time the idea that we should create a way for Americans from different backgrounds from different educational backgrounds from socioeconomic backgrounds like all these things they're right now really isn't a place for us to meet each other, especially those of us who grew up in sort of cloistered religious communities, or especially those of us who go to colleges that are a very specific type of college. There are very few interactions, even in the workplace. Generally in the workplace, we're meeting vast majority of people 
who come from similar colleges and socioeconomic backgrounds and communities, it really is kind of rare for us these days to be meeting different types of people. And that's one of the things that I think is a problem. And we don't, we, it's true when he mentions, you know, someone from the North meeting someone from the South, it is pretty rare for people from different geographic regions, right? Even now, the vast majority of college students are going to local colleges. They're going to state colleges. They're going to community colleges. It just doesn't happen so often that we meet people from such different backgrounds. And I do think that is a problem because I think more and more we feel less tied to America and we feel more tied to our region of America. And I think overall, that's not a great thing. But actually, I'm not even sure. What what do you think? Yeah. I mean, not to get repetitive, but I, I do think he's right And what you're kind of echoing is you're acknowledging the truth that there is something unique about military service and I guess the intensity of it, which leads to people coming together in a way that they just don't or don't have the opportunity to in almost any other context. And the truth is, I mean... I think it's really a luxury and, a, and a, a, a place of privilege, you know, to use the buzzwords, to be able to say we shouldn't have a, a mandatory conscription because that's coming from a perspective of like we don't need an army. You know, there's a lot of people now, more liberal type people who want to cut military funding and don't think it's so important and whatever. Right. And yeah, that's because thankfully we're not in a in a position of like. I, I would I would go even further. Threat. I would say I think there's a snobbishness that many of us and, and I. I've definitely heard this and I've definitely, you know, maybe in worse moments thought this, there's a snobbish, a snobbishness associated with the military of sort of like, I'm not going to like run around in mud and like, you know, get dirty and like, you know, do physical sort of like labor and, you know, ru- like that's, that's not for me. Like I'm a computer person, you know, or I'm, I'm a creative or I'm a, what like there's, there's like a, I'm not that kind of person because I'm a X. Right. And I think that that the association that we have with the army is is not one that I think um, many of us respect. I think that exists, but I think you people might think that. But what they I think more often will say is that they don't want to. They wouldn't do it because they're not going to glorify violence and totally and, agree. Or, or they don't agree with America's military strategies in general. So why would they want to be part of that military industrial complex or whatever? Um, but the truth is, it's obviously Israel has a much more pressing and immediate need for an army. America does also. First well, Israel is a much smaller country. Right, right. But I'm just saying, it's not like the U.S. doesn't have any current need for for a military. Um, aside from just like defending our borders, there's still a war in Afghanistan, and there's stuff going on in Iraq. And I wonder if the person who who wrote that article, the, this guy Chris, if what he's saying is like, yeah, we're not at the levels in, of World War II where we need like millions of people to join the army, but maybe, you know, one out of 100 or one out of 200 uh, U.S. citizens will randomly be chosen to serve in the army, and then they're going to go back to their communities and their families, and, uh, you know, and now the army will be representative of the the population instead of just being volunteer. I wonder if that's what he's implying. That sounds or... like Hunger Games style. Well, but I don't, yeah. I don't think that that's, that's even though I think that's kind of an interesting idea, I, or is it that just everybody should do the military even though we don't need those kind of numbers right. just because I, I think, of the experience? Because that's military, a little bit silly. But I think the military is less the argument for him and it's much more about creating a system in which everyone right. in America is involved with each other and we're thrown into this into this sort of like mixed bag. One of the things though that he cautioned against which I thought was actually very interesting that I never thought about I think of his army as a melting pot where it's a place where all these different types of people with different backgrounds public school, private school, rich, poor, black, white all of these things can mm-hmm. end, sort of end up being in the same place and one of the things he mentioned is that his father had been in the military he had not been but his father was in the national guard and he said 
My dad was a middle-class white kid, was in the National Guard, and did his active duty at Fort Sill in the artillery. He trained forward observers to go to Vietnam, and he said invariably that they were black and poor and were going to the most dangerous job in the artillery in Vietnam. And I think he came away with a pretty bad taste in his mouth. Right. That's the end of the quote. But that I thought was so interesting because I never even thought about that. Right. Because if you have certain connections, right, if you have if you know the right people, if you know the right way to go, if you're, if you're kind of like given the, the background knowledge, of like, oh, asked to go into this unit, asked to do this thing, whatever, you inevitably end up doing the less dangerous, the more, you know, behind a desk kind of thing and, and stuff right. like that, which creates it's like you want it to create social cohesion, but instead it almost has the yeah, opposite. There's th- a resentment. There's a pain there. Right. I think that was much more of a Vietnam thing than a World War Two thing. Um, from my understanding, World War II, it was really almost everybody um, went in to the army. In, in Vietnam, it was much easier. Like I've heard tons of people that I know personally who who could, who were of um, you know military age but got out because they were in school or right. college or whatever. Like then ended up being the people been in school, whatever. So people who didn't go to school were the ones who who, who had to go to Vietnam. And that, those, those those are lower uh, right. Uh, yeah. So Trump called for uh, people to join the military, and he himself got out. So obviously he's a hypocrite, and I'm not denying that. But I, I think it's all. What, I think part of like finding a way of, of um, fostering that kind of cohesion outside of a military context. Part of it is that our whole perception of our own history, whether it's American history or also Israeli history, is so military based. I think it's very interesting when you think about it. Like I actually was at this birthright um, training thing a couple months ago and the head of uh, education for birthright was talking to our group and he was saying how he's, he's, he wants to change the way we talk about Israel and Israeli history. And he's like, when a lot of people talk about Israeli history, all they talk about is the wars. There's like, well, there's the war of 1948 and there's the Sinai campaign and there's 67 and, and then the Yom Kippur war. And it's just the wars. And like, yeah, that there's, it's very understandable why people do mm-hmm. that because wars are such pivotal, you know, existential events in a, in a country's and a people's history. But maybe we can, and, and Trump, you know, he did talk about in American innovation and civil rights and ending slavery and all kinds of other things, but he was very heavy focus on let me tell you the story of America and then he proceeds to talk about right. the history of the military and the wars. Right. I think it will require a conscious effort um, in moving away from the way people kind of have been for the whole of human history, which is like, you know, so military based to move away from that. And if I think if we're able to look at our past differently and take the focus from the past away from the military, that I think that'll help us in the present and the future in uh, not getting rid of armies for now, because I think they're still necessary, but to like think of other ways of venerating individuals and group cohesion um, in a not, you know, nonviolent, non-military right. context. So I think that's true. And I think it's important. I think we can, you know, talk about different ways in which we can try to create something like that. But one of the things that I am wondering about is um, how this connects kind of, you know, Colin Kaepernick, I think was actually in the news again recently because of the whole, did you see the, the, the Nike shoes that were called the 4th of July shoes? No, I didn't see that. There, there were shoes basically um, that were using the flags, Betsy Ross's flag, which the original 13 colonies uh-huh. that Nike was printing special 4th of July. And according to the rumor, which seems to be true, but you know, I'm not really in the hock of shoes. 
uh, that Colin Kaepernick basically requested that they get called back, and then they they never actually went to release. Um, because he's their spokesperson, and he gets to get to say what they what they do. He, I mean, I think it's a financial decision, right? Because he has a lot of financial right. sway, and his his stuff sells, and people, a, a lot of Nike fans, really really care what he has to mm-hmm. say. So they made the financial decision to recall them. You know, lose a lot of money, wow. obviously. Um, but it's kind of interesting because a lot of people are very upset with that. They were saying, you know. This is this is a, this is America. You know, you can you could protest. You know, the, if you want, you can protest anything, whatever. But we're not gonna let's not lose a flag. Even it's not it's not today's flag. It's you know the original flag. This is Betsy Ross's flag. But it's a, kind of an interesting question of sort of like how all of these things seem to tie together or not tie together, right? What does it mean to have a pride in our military? What does it mean to have a pride in our flag? What does it mean to have a pride in our country? Right? It kind of relates a little bit back to. Uh, pride in our national soccer team, right? Like, what do these Mm -hmm. things really mean? And what does it mean to be American or un-American, right, in these things? I think that's a much bigger conversation. We've touched on... So we have about two minutes, so let's let's do it. Well, we've touched on some things, like we talked about open borders a while ago, and that got into a little bit of like, well, what is a country? What is the value of having closed borders and national identity? Um, I think, you know, and that gets, gets into, you know, John Lennon's Imagine about uh, Imagine there's no countries, no possessions, you know, whatever. But I, I think in terms Did of... Did you see the new movie? The Beatles movie? Yeah. No, not yet. <laughs> I will. Um, but in, in terms of like national pride, I think it's complicated. You know, when, when you're someone like Colin Kaepernick and he's a multimillionaire and he's saying like America is terrible and we, we shouldn't celebrate the flag. Like, I, I think that's very short sighted. And, and Well, he didn't say we shouldn't celebrate well, the flag. Okay, we shouldn't have a sneaker that has a flag on it. You know, maybe you could say, oh, because it's, you're stepping on it. It's not it's disrespectful to the flag. Like, I doubt that's yeah. what he meant. Maybe some other people on the other side of the extreme <laughs> would say that. Um, you know, it's also like, it's very easy to criticize the police for, for shooting unarmed black people, but I don't think anybody really wants the police to disappear because then we would have lawlessness and chaos in the streets and the same thing with the military. Well, there are absolutely people who believe that police should disappear. I I know that they say that and they think they believe that, but I, but I think they're stupid for thinking that because it makes no sense. If uh, I think, (laughs) whatever. We can can get into that at a different time. No, and same thing with the military, you know, even for people who, you know, so it's like, yeah, there's plenty to criticize in American history, plenty to criticize in America's military history, but that doesn't mean that A, it wasn't essential for our survival, and B, that it didn't do many amazing things for the world and for civilization and for democracy. So I just want to quote quickly Colin Kaepernick's July 4th Twitter post, which I thought was, uh, okay. was pretty powerful. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. It was a, it's a quote from Frederick Douglass. And he said, what have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? This 4th of July is yours, not mine. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. And it, it came also with a with a video yeah, with a bunch I, of different I, images so, and stuff I'm like that. I'm so sorry, but that's just absurd. And I mean, he's quoting Frederick Douglass. You, you know what? Nobody is forcing Colin Kaepernick to stay in America. And if this is the worst country in the world, he is more than welcome to leave and he's obviously staying right, because hold on, it's not I, the worst country in What I want to just point out is that we think of Frederick Douglass, or many of us, I don't want to say you, I think of Frederick Douglass as an incredible American. Okay. Right? Like, I think of Frederick Douglass as standing up for values that I think of as very American. And yet, Frederick Douglass says, this July 4th is yours, not mine. Well, right. Frederick what Douglass year did he say that in? 
mid 1800s right before i mean um, when slavery still existed and he had a, a lot more reason i think to say that he i don't think frederick Douglass was a multimillionaire with the football sure but nike but contract who cares like what does that have to do with anything it's not a government con- like I, I don't think that that's the point i think the point is that protest against the country is also very american no, no, exactly. and calling no, out my, the country my, for doing right. very very bad things my point, is also very right. american my point is that colin kaepernick instead of saying america is the, quoting somebody saying perhaps out of context because i know i don't know the context of what frederick Douglas was talking about to say that America is the worst country in the world is very different than saying this is an amazing country that has a lot to atone for and a lot to fix and there's a lot wrong with it but let's be thankful for the things that we do have or something like that you know this is it's not his responsibility to give an inspiring it's message. It's not his responsibility to... There's a lot of negative... What, what is his... Does he have any responsibility for anything? Yeah, to speak his truth. Okay. What are you talking about? Like, I, we're rearing off topic he, here a little bit. No, I think this is actually critical to the topic, right? I, I think this is really, it, I, really important. I, I th- yeah, I, I, don't, I have zero patience for people who, who make the claim that America is the worst country in the world and the biggest you know, perpetrator of terrorism or whatever, however you want to phrase it. I have no patience for that. I'm sorry. That sounds a little unnuanced of you, Uri. I'm saying I have no room for nuance for people who are unnuanced and so black and white and painting something in such a overly simplistic and you know, twisted way. Criticize America all you want. But if you're going to say America is the worst country in the world and, and you have countries like North Korea and China and Russia and, and on and on and on, like, what are we even talking about? Well, I mean, he's speaking, uh, and you're right, we don't need to get into the entire Colin Kaepernick conversation, but he's fe- speaking from a very particular perspective where he feels really emotionally That's fine, so talk about those issues and be specific things. about the issues that, that he wants to criticize yeah, instead of he, just saying, that was very vague, America's the worst country in the world, that's the most vague thing you can say. Okay, he didn't say America is the worst country in the world. He said, there is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody okay. than are the people of these United That's States. That's exactly the same thing. Uh, okay, I mean, I, I think that <laughs> I think that not? what he's saying okay. has, a, has a lot of validity, and I think that doesn't mean oh, that he's yeah? anti-American, and I don't think that means I'm anti-American. Listen, Rivki, I was worried that this conversation was going to be like too boring, and we weren't going to be disagreeing <laughs> about anything. Should have opened with I'm, this. I'm glad we, we we're getting all worked up here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, look, like, I'm, I'm a big fan of America. I live here, but I'm also... Uh, I really think that America has done a lot of screwed up things. It continues to do a lot of screwed up things. And I think that... Not denying that. I'm happy to talk about all those things. <laughs> so just because I'm using different language, I don't think that... <laughs> uh, look, he's, he's using extreme language because he's trying to get a rise out of people because he wants people to wake up to something okay. that he sees as gravely I evil. I don't respect that. All right. I don't think that's the way to do it. I don't think that's, that's what our great um, historical leaders, including Martin Luther King... That's what Frederick Douglass did. Uh, I don't know the context of that speech. I'm going to have to look it up, and I don't want to talk about that without knowing. All right, we'll, we'll put a link to the context and see okay. if maybe it was very measured and, uh, and loving. I do not think it was. Um, but anyway, Uri, there's, there's a lot more, and you're right. This, this always seems to happen, right? We get very heated at the end. I think we, we find the little the, the pressure point that we both explode towards, but... Um, We'll see if we can uh, continue the conversation off mic and maybe we'll try not to yell at each other. Um, but of course, we want to hear from all of you, most importantly. Please email us at talkingtalklesspodcast at gmail.com and join the conversation on our Facebook page, Talking Talkless Podcast. And let us know what you think. Let us know what you think about Colin Kaepernick. Let us, think, let us know what you think about uh, the Trump speech, if you watched it or if you read it. And let us know what you think about a mandatory draft or a mandatory some sort of other civic responsibility and, and giving back you could do you know, after high school, after college, whatever it is. 
Yeah, we did seem to uh, veer a little bit off topic there, but still interesting, and we'd love to continue that conversation. Thanks, as always, to Drive-In Productions. They are the sponsor of this week's episode. And thank you to Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They are the official band of Talking Topless. Bye, everyone. Bye. (laughs) Bye.